they can try predicting it and actually with, with a, a tremendous amount of accuracy. We can predict the weather, but we cannot prevent it. We can prepare for it, but we can't change it. Pick up with me now in Luke chapter 8. We'll witness Jesus doing what Napoleon could not do, doing what Hitler could not do, doing what WKRG could not do, doing what nobody in history has been able to do, and that is control the weather. Pick up in verse 22. Now, it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship, into a boat, with his disciples, and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose, rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they were... They, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commanded even the winds and water, and they obey him. So we begin this section in Luke's gospel. We're really beginning a a new segment. Really from here through the end of chapter 8, we will see on display the awesome, amazing power of Jesus. Luke is going to record a cluster of miracles, and they're put together deliberately. Understand this. When you're reading the Gospels, when you're reading narratives in the Bible, they're not just thrown together willy-nilly. It's not just this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. But they're put together to prove a point. And the point that Luke is going to seek to persuade us of is the awesome, infinite power of Jesus Christ. By the end of Luke chapter 8, we will see Jesus who is sovereign and powerful over everything. In this passage, we'll see his power has all power over the weather, over nature, over creation. When he gets across to the other side of the lake next week, we will see his, his authority over demons. He encounters this man who is occupied and controlled by a legion, by an army of demons. And Jesus defeats them. Power over the demonic realm. Power over the spiritual realm. Then he comes back and there is a, a little girl. Her dad's name is Jairus. Jairus' daughter. And she dies. Jesus raises her from the dead. But while he's on the way to to, to deliver her, he's encountered by a woman with an issue of blood, and he rescues her. So we see his authority, his power over death, over disease, over demons, over nature, over disasters. And the point, the picture, the portrait that Luke is painting for us is a savior, is Jesus, who's not merely a great teacher, but is God. That is the only conclusion we can come to. That is what he is seeking to persuade us of. So that is the goal for us today and for coming weeks is to gaze upon, to meditate upon, to be in awe of the awesome power of Jesus Christ. I want us to approach this this morning as if we don't know anything about Jesus. Because I think we all, oh yeah, Jesus is powerful. We know the stories. I want us to approach this to see his power as he calms the storm, as he controls the weather, as he has this awesome power over everything. So let's marvel at his power. If we can walk out of the room today being in awe of the power of Jesus, be like, he's a lot more powerful than, than I realized. Or I've been reminded today of something that I knew but I had forgotten. To me, that would be a successful church service. Not that we simply know the story, but that we can look through the story and see the power of Jesus. I read an illustration this week that when we look at Scripture, it's like a window into the character and the nature of God. I want us to understand what the window is made of and what's in the text, but I want us to look through the window and what is on the other side as we see the power of Jesus. And I want us to gaze upon that. 
All right, so let's go ahead and dive in. I want to just draw your attention this morning to three facets of his power that are on display here. Three facets, three qualities of the power of Jesus that we see in this narrative. It's a familiar story, but I think it's got some amazing truth if we will pause and take a look at it. So notice first off his sovereign power. His sovereign power. When I talk about the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Jesus, I mean the fact that he is firmly in control of everything. His sovereignty is not simple potential. Some of us were like, oh, yeah, well, God has control. He could, you know, if things kind of get out of control, he'll be like, don't make me come down there, and then he'll show up. What I mean by his sovereignty is I mean that God in his power, in his infinitude, in his wisdom, ordains everything that comes to pass. He controls everything. There's not a, a bird that falls anywhere on the planet, and he does not know about it. He knows about the very hairs on, the, uh, on our head. He knows the number of them. His sovereignty goes down to the most minute details of his creation. There's nothing that just happens. But everything happens in accordance with the plan of God. The way Ephesians puts it, puts it is he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Not just most things, not just some things, but all things. He has a plan from eternity past that he wrote, and everything that happens in history is part of that plan. Now, that does not mean that he causes evil, but it does mean that evil is part of his plan. It's not something that he's like, oops, that wasn't supposed to happen, but he decreed to permit evil and to permit suffering and to permit the fall and is actively in control of all that occurs. So how do we see his sovereign power in this story? We'll look in verse 22. Now, it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples, and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. Notice his sovereign power that's happening here before the storm. It's not that Jesus gets into a boat just kind of like, I have no clue what's going on, and, Oh, no, there's a storm. I better do something. But notice the, 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 the deliberateness, the deliberate nature, the intentionality of what he's doing in verse 22. Now, notice the setting here. It says it came to pass on a certain day. Luke is deliberately vague here. Just, hey, one of the days, Jesus was one of those kinds of days. If you read Mark's gospel, you find out this comes at the end of a long day of teaching. Their crowds are pressing on Jesus. He gets into a boat. They push off from the shore, and he teaches from sunup to sundown. That's a lot of work. If you're out in the Galilean sun all day long, all day teaching, all day preaching, that is exhausting. I know even just after a Sunday, you know, I preach two or three times, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night. It's tiring. Those of you who have taught school in the past, you know, man, teaching and being sort of mentally engaged, it's exhausting. Even for Jesus, who's God's son, the, 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 the level of exhaustion here is profound. So it's on that, the, the certain day he's been teaching all day, and he's, he's at this place of exhaustion. By the way, that explains why he falls asleep in the next verse. As they sailed, he fell asleep. He is truly man. He is truly exhausted. And he's able to sleep on, a, on the roller coaster ride of a boat in the middle of a storm. So why is he exhausted? So well, it's his humanity. Yes, that's part of it. But he's exhausted because he is doing everything his father ordained. He tells us in John's gospel, I always do the things that please my father. Literally everything that Jesus did, every word he spoke, Every step he took, every sermon he preached was in perfect obedience with the plan of his father. He was deliberately working the plan. There's nothing that Jesus is just off willy-nilly doing and the, the father's like, hey, what are you doing, son? But the father and the son in perfect harmony working the plan of redemption in every second of his life. So even his exhaustion is the result and is part of him obeying the father's will to say the things and to do the things the father gave him to do. 
So verse 22 goes on. It was on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples. So you're like, well, there's not a big deal there. Sort of wrapped up behind that, behind, let me just give you a literal rendering. He himself entered a ship with his disciples. Uh, the way Greek works is kind of like Spanish. You don't have to put a pronoun with a verb. So when they do put a pronoun with a verb, it's like uh, I'm highlighting that, that he himself, he's the one taking the initiative here. This unnecessary pronoun shows that it is Jesus taking the initiative. This is not some harebrained scheme of the disciples. Like, hey, Jesus, let's go on a boat ride across the lake even though you're tired. Sounds like something like Peter would come up with, right? No, this is his plan. It's his initiative to do a nighttime crossing of the lake after a long day of teaching, and it's his plan. Notice what it says in verse 22. He says to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Jesus is the one coming up with the plan. Jesus is the one initiating. He's the one leading. He's sovereign before the storm ever hits. He's in control, leading through this plan. He declares, let us cross over. Almost the sense of this is almost a command. Hey, we must. We're going to do this together, guys. This is the plan. We're going to make it happen. He is not stumbling into the storm. He is leading into the storm. I think that's a good truth for us to be reminded of. When we, sometimes we find ourselves in a dark place, in a difficult place, and we're like, God, we need you to intervene. Guess what? Guess who led you there? The same shepherd who leads us beside the still waters leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. It is no less his goodness. He is no less sovereign just because it is dark. It's kind of like a, a, a child being afraid of the dark, thinking dad is no longer there because the lights went out. No, he's still there. The same Savior who leads you through times of prosperity will lead you through times of poverty. He is just as sovereign in both. He is no less sovereign over the pain than he is over the pleasure. He's no less sovereign when you've got sleepless nights than when everything is going great. He is sovereign over everything. Everything that happens is under his rule and is part of his plan. His plan does not undergo modifications as circumstances change. Here's why. The circumstances are the plan. There are no unforeseen circumstances to our God. Everything is his plan. So we see his sovereign power before the storm ever happens. He's leading into it. By the way, it's not as if Jesus didn't know about it. He is truly God and he is truly man. And in his divine mind, he knew the storm was coming. He was the one who wrote that story before eternity passed. There will be a storm on this date on the Sea of Galilee and the molecules will do this and the weather will do that. But we see his sovereign power in verse 23, during the storm. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. By the way, that word sailed can, can be a generic word just to mean they moved the boat along through the water. Or it, does, it could suggest that this is actually a sailboat. Um, possible, possible uh, either way. So as they're sailing, he's sleeping. That's the, the main verb, as they sailed. The main idea here is that he fell asleep. Of course, this shows us the humanity of Jesus, that he is truly man, he needs sleep, he gets exhausted, which, by the way, is really comforting because, hey, I'm feeling exhausted right now, right? The baby comes, there's not much sleeping going on, you feel exhaustion, and no, Jesus understands that. He went through that, and maybe that's where you are, you're like, man, there's so much pressure, so much anxiety, and I, I, I'm exhausted. Man, Jesus doesn't understand that. He's God, he's in heaven. Oh, no, he does. He cares, I know he cares. So sovereign is Jesus that he is able to sleep while the disciples sail, all the while knowing that the storm will soon be upon him. See, Jesus trusted his heavenly father. He's divine, he's human. As a human in his human nature, he had to rely on the father just like you and I do. The ability to lie down and sleep 
with a storm brewing is, a, is a, an expression of faith. Psalms 4 and verse 8 says this, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, are able to make me dwell in safety. Sometimes the most godly thing you can do is say, you know what, I'm going to sleep and I'm going to trust my Father to take care of everything. So here's the Savior. He planned the storm. He knew the storm was coming, and yet he slept deeply. He was so fully at peace with his Father's plan, he could sleep even as a storm approached. But notice, back to verse 23. Look back in the text. By the way, I like drawing your attention back to the text so you have a Bible open, because I don't want to just get up here and talk about the Bible, but I want to actually preach the Bible. I don't want to just tell you what it says, but I want to show you what it says and lead you through the text. So look in verse 23. As they sailed, he fell asleep, and there came down a storm of wind on the lake. So that next phrase, there's a storm of wind that descends on the lake. Suddenly, without warning, the language here shows a fierce windstorm sweeping down the Sea of Galilee. That word that says a storm of, uh, of wind, that word storm, lilaps, it's literally the word that refers to a whirlwind or a hurricane. We get hurricanes around here. Think about hurricane force winds. You don't want to be out on a little 25-foot boat, right, anywhere with a hurricane bearing down on you. I'm no, I'm no mariner. I'm no expert on these things. But if you're in a little rowboat out on Mobile Bay and there's a, a hurricane coming, that's a really dumb place to be, right? Like, that's, that, that's not a good idea. Here they are in a little 25-foot boat, if archaeology, if this is similar to other boats that have been dug up, and this hurricane of wind. Now, not literally, of course, a hurricane. You don't get those in Palestine. But a whirlwind, uh, just this intense windstorm. And notice the language. It says it came down. There came down a storm of wind on the lake. Um, that is the Greek word from which we get the meteorological term katabatic. Chris, you probably know about katabatic winds. They're winds that come down off the mountain and they sweep down the mountain. Here's the thing about the Sea of Galilee. It's 682 feet below sea level. It's down in a, in a bowl. Um, and it's the, the, one of the, the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. It's going to flow down the Jordan River into the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on the planet. That's salt water down there. So you're at the bottom of this bowl. You're surrounded by mountains. Just 30 miles to the north, you have Mount Hermon, which is about 9,000 feet. There's a ski resort on it. So just in 30 miles, you can go from skiing to being below sea level. On a clear, calm night, particularly in the winter, the air on the mountain cools off. That's how it works in the desert. When it's clear and when it's calm, the, the, the warm air just disperses into space. It cools off. Cold air is heavier than warm air, and it begins to descend down the mountain. As it goes down the mountain, it, it picks up speed, and it gets funneled down through these canyons and these ravines and comes bursting out onto the, onto the Sea of Galilee, and it'll sweep down from the northeast down to the southwest with tremendous intensity. That's why you're like, man, these guys are mariners. They should have known a storm was coming. Probably a clear night. This is not a thunderstorm. There probably weren't any thunderheads, no cumulonimbus clouds over on the other side to go sail into. No, it would have been a clear, calm night, and boom, this storm just comes, smacks them upside the head. At any moment, this, can, this kind of thing, these catabatic winds, can transform the placid lake into a seething boil. When these... Cold winds crash with the relatively warm air in the water of the lake. It creates a sloshing cauldron of boiling seas. Now, these disciples are experienced fishermen. At least four of these guys lived on the lake. They fish. They, they, they know these waters. They know how to keep a boat afloat. So notice verse 23, back to the text. And they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. This is a really bad situation. 
These guys didn't sail into this on purpose. They would have known not to go out on the lake if there's a storm. It came upon them out of nowhere. But we see the sovereign power of Jesus sleeping even as the storm approaches, planning for the storm to come. Listen, he is sovereign over everything. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, okay, but what I'm going through right now, Pastor Sam, you don't understand the struggles I am having right now in my family. Financial situation right now. Like, I don't see how we're going to make the payments this month. This is, this is, this is bad. I'm dealing with just the anxiety and the grief and the loneliness of my life the way it is now. And my, my health is in a bad place. I'm, I'm going to the doctor, and there's a mass, and they're going to have to do a biopsy. And he is sovereign over even that. Beloved, you can take comfort in knowing that even the storms arise at his command. That even cancer, even heartache, even loss came from the hand of your loving Heavenly Father. It's true. If he's sovereign, if, this is, if what this is saying is true, if it was true here, it's true for us today. We see the sovereignty of the Savior. And by the way, the presence of Jesus in the boat did not preclude the arrival of the storm. You say, well, I got Jesus. Everything will be great. I've put my trust in him. It doesn't mean storms won't come. In fact, he may send storms deliberately to make us cling all the tighter to him. This was plan A. This was not plan B. Plan B. God does not do plan Bs or plan Ws. He does only plan A. We see his sovereign power. But we move on into the heart of the story, and I want you to notice next his saving power. So the end of verse 23 says, And they're filled with water and were in jeopardy. Literally, the boat was swamped. Luke uses a technical, nautical terminology to refer to the boat being filled with water. I think Luke, by the way, really liked boating. You read about his descriptions in the book of Acts about Paul's shipwreck. And other places, oh, he went from here to here to here. But when, man, there's a boat involved, Luke is like, and they did this and the rigging and the waves. I think this guy loved boating, right? He loved being out in the water. If Dr. Luke lived here today, he would have a boat and be at Dauphin Island every weekend. Pretty convinced of that. And so here, here he is giving his description. They're, they're, they're swamped with water. Not a good place to be when the water is getting into the boat, right? Again, I don't own a boat, but I know this. You don't want water getting into the boat. Growing up, my dad had a little sunfish. It was a small, like, one-sail little sailboat we take on lakes out in Arizona. Well, one of my brothers forgot to put the little, I think it's called the bunghole in, where you drain the water out of it. I forgot to put that in. And so we're going around the lake, and the boat is getting lower and lower in the water and beginning to sink. And uh, we barely made it to shore where, like, the, the, the boat itself was submerged in water and just the sail was sticking out. It was almost like a Jack Sparrow walk off the top of the mast onto the shore kind of event. Um, not a good thing when water is getting into the boat. The boat was being swamped in perfect tense. It's in the, Luke's drawing us into the action. Picture the boat, water spilling over the sides, more and more water coming in. They're frantically trying to bail the water out, but it's coming in faster than they can bail. And so they say, it says that they were in jeopardy. They were in danger. Their lives were at risk. Listen, if, you, if your boat goes down out in the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm, it doesn't matter how good a swimmer you are, the waves are going to swallow you up. They're coming from every direction. By the way, waves on lakes are not like waves on the ocean. On the ocean, they kind of come in in a good rhythm. On a lake, they're going back and forth from one side of the lake to the other, kind of like water sloshing back and forth in a bathtub, crashing in with each other. So they say in verse 24, they came to him, this is the smartest thing these guys did, and they awoke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. That's a good thing to do. So we see their panic here. 
Jesus was still asleep even as the boat filled with water. Such was his level of exhaustion. So the disciples now in utter panic, they're screaming out. Notice the repetition, master, master. This is not just a, hey, Jesus, you think you could help us out here? This is not just a polite, go shake him awake and see, you know, if he's got an idea here. But this is sheer panic and terror. In all three Gospels, this is recorded a little bit different. In Matthew's Gospel, they call him Kurios, Lord, Lord. In Mark, they call him Didaskalos, Teacher, Teacher. Basically, they're shouting every title they can, Jesus, Master, Savior, save us. And they're saying it over and over again. This is not a well-rehearsed speech, but this is the panic, the, the cry of terror. It's messy. It's not theologically rich. But listen, it expresses desperation and a recognition, at the very least, that Jesus is the only one who can help. Now, Jesus will give them, will upbraid them at the end, but where was your faith? But they had enough faith in Jesus to know that he was the only one who could help. They're calling out to the only one with power to help. It is beautiful desperation. It is glorious neediness. We're in the process of perishing now is the sense of that phrase, we perish. They're being completely honest with Jesus, even with their greatest fears and their deepest dangers. Listen, that's probably where many of you need to be today. You've got this distant relationship with God. Things aren't going super well, and you're praying these pious prayers. Oh, Lord, who art in heaven. Be honest with God. Pour your heart out to him. Tell him exactly what's going on. Guess what? He already knows, right? There's not a word in my tongue, but thou knowest it all together already. God knows what you're already going to say. This is what a relationship is about, is pouring your heart out to your God in desperation of, God, I need you. I need your help. This is what is going on. That's where intimacy with God is born, often in the womb of desperation and danger. You see, this attitude of desperation is so often missing from our prayers, missing from my prayers. Pray, give us this day our daily bread while I've got a refrigerator full of food. Kind of like, hey, if God doesn't answer the prayer, I've got a good backup plan here, right? There's not a sense of, of need of my life is ever in your care. He's holding me in his hand, and I don't have anything except that which he gave me. The reason why we are so lackadaisical in our prayers is because we don't see the neediness in our lives. We figure that we'll simply get what we want with or without prayers, and our prayers are simply a duty we perform. Anybody with me on that? Anyone feel that with me where it's like, okay, I know i got to pray, but I don't really want to pray. I don't really feel like I need to pray. Because our lives, we really got them together quite nicely without God, and we've got to put God as the cherry on the top of our really beautiful-looking ice cream sundae of our lives. True prayer comes from a place of genuine need. Now, what I'm not saying is wait until things are really bad and then pray. Rather, recognize that every day is a time of genuine need. You might feel like the boat's going really well. No, it's actually full of water. Your finances might look great. That's because God is providing for you, and he provides through prayer. It's the means that he has ordained. Every day, we're in a far more desperate place than these disciples were. Daily in need of his grace. The application I think of is the salvation of our souls. That word, we are perishing, apolumai. That is the word that's used in John 3.16, should not perish. Here, of course, referring to physical death, but used frequently in the Bible referring to spiritual death. You see, we are drowning. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are drowning in your sin and in your guilt. You don't have the capacity to bail the boat out with the pail of your good works. You don't have the, the ability to doggy paddle your way to the shore of heaven through your own effort. You don't have it what it takes to make it. The ship is sinking and there is no hope for you to save yourself. 
We're helpless before the coming billows of divine wrath, which we so richly deserve. Listen, multitudes this morning, maybe even people sitting in this room today, people I'm confident in the city of Mobile are confident they can bail their own boat out with a puny pail of human efforts. The boat will surely sink. You will surely die. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. The waves are towering over your boat. And we think our good works so foolishly can somehow keep it afloat. That is sheer folly. Your only hope is Jesus Christ. To go to him and say, Master, Master, we are perishing. I'm drowning in my sin. I deserve your wrath. Would you save me and deliver me? Be merciful to me, the sinner. A cry of desperation. Like the disciples, if you want deliverance from your sin and the coming billows of divine wrath, you come to him and cry out to him as Master and Lord and Savior and as your all in all. This is not a, Jesus, could you just be a little part of my life? This is Jesus, you're our only hope. There's desperation here, there's dependence here. And though their faith is frail, though their faith is weak, though their faith is fearful, they know Jesus well enough to know that he is their last best hope, to steal a phrase from Ronald Reagan. They're not certain. Jesus will later upbraid them for their unbelief, but they do run to Jesus. And that's the test of faith. Do you run to Jesus? Do you depend on Jesus? They'd seen him work miracles. They'd seen him raise the dead. They'd seen him heal the sick. They'd seen him defeat demons. And maybe, just maybe, he could lend a hand with bailing out the boat. I think that's what they had in mind is, hey, we need another hand here to to get the water out of here. Maybe Jesus can help pull on an oar. But what he does is so much greater. Look back in the text. This is awesome. If you've drifted off with me onto the sea of your own thoughts, come back here into this boat in the middle of the storm with me. Verse 24, they say, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. You feel that just the change in tone? Panic, we're perishing, we're perishing. And here's Jesus calmly gets up, maybe yawns, stretches a little bit, and is just kind of, okay, guys, calm down. Let's watch, watch what's going to happen here. He arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. All right, we find out in the other gospel, he says, peace be still. He tells the waves literally in the Greek, shut up, zip it. What he does stuns everyone. He does not simply grab a bucket or pick up an oar. He does not merely pray for them. This is what is so amazing about his power. He doesn't say, Father in heaven, would you still the storm? No, he stills the storm. He takes authority. That word rebuked is a word of authority. That's the word that would be used of a general who is rebuking a private or a, or a parent who is calling out a child. This is the creator rebuking his creation because he is God. He speaks to his creation. Which, by the way, think about how weird that would be, right? I heard a thunderstorm a little while ago. It's raining out there. We're all waiting to leave for church, and we're all standing out here in the foyer waiting to make a dash to the cars. And then Brian stands up and goes outside with his arms and says, Peace be still. We'd be like, Brian, really? Okay, that would, that, that would, that would kind of weird us out, right? But if the creator speaks to his creation, that's something entirely different. He speaks. Verse 24, he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. Love that word, raging of the water. What a beautiful way to put that. And they ceased. And there was a calm. This is saving power. With just a word, he delivers and saves the disciples from their most desperate need. Now, it would be one thing for him to speak and then the waves come. 
calm down. Oh, that was great timing, right? You ever have good timing? Be like, I think it's going to rain right about now, and it starts raining. You can sometimes make that kind of thing happen. But not only does he stop the wind, that could be just happenstance. He also stops the waves. Right, do this sometime. Go, go home, fill your bathtub up, and then get the water sloshing back and forth. And then stop sloshing. Does the water stop immediately, or does it keep sloshing? Keep sloshing, right? The water in the lake would have kept on back and forth. For the waves to stop immediately is as great a miracle as the wind stopping. He's just, did some, he just done something that, every, that no one else has ever done. Calmed a storm and stopped the waves. Meteorologists with their supercomputers, satellites, and radars can predict a storm is coming, but they can't prevent it. By the way, Al Gore cannot change the weather either. Just throwing that out there. The disciples see something in this. He just spoke to a storm, and it stopped. That's crazy. That's powerful. These guys knew their Old Testaments well enough to know what the Bible said back in Psalm 107. Psalm 107 says, He, that is God, commandeth and raises the stormy wind and lifteth the waves thereof. They, the waves, go up to heaven. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They, the sailors, reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. I think Luke's deliberately referencing Psalm 107, verse 29. And who's that speaking about? It's not speaking about a prophet. It's not speaking about David. It's speaking about Yahweh, speaking about God Almighty himself. The disciples remembered the Old Testament at this point, that someone who can calm the storm is the one who can send the storm, and that can only be God. They probably thought about the verse that was read earlier to us that that Benjamin read, Psalm 65 and verse 7. Speaking of God, which stilleth the noise of the seas and the noise of their waves and the tumult of the people. Only God can do that. They probably thought of Psalm 89 and verse 9. Psalm 89 and verse 9. Let me just get there in my... Bible and read this to you. Psalm 89 and verse 9, speaking about the power of God. Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Again, Yahweh, God Almighty, the one who calms the waves. Psalm 104 and verse 7. I'll just give you a couple more of these. Psalm 104 and verse 7. At thy rebuke they, that is the the waves, fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. One more, Psalm 106. In verse 9, he rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. This is like a bigger than Moses kind of thing. See, Moses appealed to God, and God opened the sea. Here's Jesus not appealing to anyone except his own authority, his own power, saving his people. He's the ruler of the winds, the waves, the Lord of the oceans. He is the creator. God and the creation answers to the same voice that brought it into existence. What is this? This is a display of sheer power. This is a display of divine power. Jesus is not simply a great teacher. He is God. What did this involve? This involved stopping billions, maybe even trillions, of colliding water molecules that are bouncing back and forth and sloshing, making waves. This meant suspending the laws of gravity where that that, that, that cold air was sweeping down the mountains, putting a halt to that meant completely taking control over the most minute aspects of his creation. This is proof that Jesus is God, the God of power. You see, the Jesus that I preach about week after week is not simply a moral teacher. 
No, he teaches great morality. He's not simply a great philosopher, though the philosophy of Christianity is the most all-encompassing, consistent worldview ever promulgated in history. He's not merely the friend of sinners. He's not merely the Savior. He is God Almighty. Now, what does that do in your worship? All hail the power of Jesus' name. Does that that have meaning to you? Do we just go through the motions week after week of singing about Jesus and talking about Jesus and Jesus this, Jesus that, Jesus fish on our cars, where he just becomes such a trivial add-on to our lives? Or do you feel the weight and the grandeur and the majesty of his power in your life? This is true. The Jesus we're dealing with is not just our little buddy who we go hang out with and we do fun things. No, he's God. He's the creator. He's the one who holds your life in existence, who keeps that little heart ticking along, who keeps your diaphragm going up and down, who holds all the atoms of the universe together, who keeps the planets rotating and orbiting, and the sun, he controls all of that. Notice the result of of the saving power. The end of verse 24, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Word for calm, galene, an unruffled surface on a body of water. So we just went from sloshing back and forth, boiling, seething ocean, seething sea, to a lake now that was as still as glass. A lake down that's like a mirror reflecting the brilliant stars of the heavens on its surface. The same God who sent the storm stopped the storm. What Jesus did on that lake that night is a microcosm of what he has been doing every single day of human history. Working his plan. So he saves them. This is saving power. But listen, when a sinner comes to Jesus Christ in repentant faith, he works an even greater miracle. You're like, man, stopping the wind, that would be pretty sweet to see. God delivering a sinner from hell and giving life to those who are spiritually dead is a miracle far greater than calming the sea. Changing someone's eternity from eternity in hell facing his wrath to eternity eternity in heaven enjoying his presence takes far greater power than simply saving some disciples from the middle of a storm. The power that saves us is awesome power. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel message, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for sinners is a message that is infinitely more powerful than those words, peace be still. It's a message that conveys more life-giving power than even the voice of creation that said, let there be light. It is a miracle that is compared to the resurrection in Ephesians 2. It is compared to creation in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. It is compared to birth. It is an incredible working of the power of God to save a sinner from hell. And it's so totally 100% God. There's nothing we can contribute to it. There's nothing we do contribute to it except the sin that makes it necessary, as Jonathan Edwards so beautifully said. It's not as if Jesus is calming the storm and being like, guys, you could just bail out a little bit of the water. Come on, at least give me a token effort here. No. It's all 100% him. Our salvation, not our work, it's his work, which means it will not fail. It's not going to falter. He's going to surely bring us across the lake into the safe harbor on the other side. And what's more, this saving power doesn't just zap you, get you saved, now you're on your way to heaven. It is actively at work in us. Ephesians 
chapter 1 and verse 15. I want to read this. I don't want to try quoting it because I don't want to butcher it. Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul. He says, when I heard of your faith in Jesus, I, don't cease, to, uh, I, I cease not to give thanks for you. I'm going to keep praying for you. I'm praying that God would open your eyes. And notice verse 19. He says, I'm praying that you would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ. He's saying the same power that raised Jesus from the dead has given you new life. And it is actively and continually working in us. One of the ways you know you're a Christian is God's power keeps on working in your life, keeps on delivering you from sin, keeps on granting you repentance, keeps on sustaining your faith, keeps on bringing you to greater and greater echelons of holiness. Do you see that in your life? Do you experience that in your life? It is yours. It is at work to usward. 2 Peter chapter 1 also makes a similar point. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to virtue and glory, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God has given us his divine power through the gospel. We have divine power. See, some people buy into a Christianity where they're always running off trying to get a hold of some divine power out there. And if only I could speak in tongues, if only someone could lay their hands on me, if only I could have some kind of an ecstatic experience, then I'll have the power of God. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have his power. You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. You have the word of God in your hands. You have everything that is necessary to live a life that is pleasing to God. Given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. That is why it's so wrong-headed to, to, to run to other places, to try to supplement the gospel, to try and supplement the truth. We have it. That is why here at Cloverleaf, we just simply open the Bible and preach it because this ha- conveys God's power. This is the sword that the Spirit wields with wounding and healing power. We simply unleash the sword. By the way, our friend Andy Gleiser has written a hymn called Unleash the Sword. Such an awesome hymn. Look it up sometime. His power is so great, he can take the turmoil and chaos of a sin-strewn life and cleanse it and remake it and redeem it for himself. He can do that for anybody. I'm in a bad place. I don't think Jesus can save me. His power is infinite. I want to bring us to a final aspect of his power, back to Luke chapter 8. Sovereign power leading into the storm, in control of the storm. Saving power, delivering the disciples out of the storm. But verse 25, I want to note, finally, his stunning power. The, the, the effect of his power on the disciples. Verse 25, he said unto them, where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, what manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. They are absolutely stunned, absolutely flabbergasted, absolutely overwhelmed by the stunning power of Jesus Christ. One minute they're getting hammered with water and wind. And the next minute everything is calm. And I think hammered, by the way, is a good word. Water has tremendous force. Ships have been broken apart, like steel modern ships broken in two in the sea in big, big storms. Getting hammered by the, the wind, getting hammered by the waves, and the next moment everything is calm. One second, they're being deafened by the roaring wind and seething sea. And the next minute, all they can hear is the gentle sound 
of their small boat drifting through the water. Bet you that was an awkward silence. And then Jesus pierces the silence with, a, with this question. Where is your faith? Like, guys, why didn't you trust me when the waves came upon you? Why can't you trust me? After spending all of this time with me, why didn't you think that I would deliver you and protect you and guide you through this storm? Now, they had enough faith to run to him in a panic, but they did not have enough faith to trust him in peace. Right? To be able to just say, I'm going I'm to rest and rely on Jesus, even when the storm's coming. I know he's got a plan. He's got this. I think we're very much like these disciples. It's easy to kind of beat up on the disciples, be like, man, these knuckleheads should have gotten this. Hey, we're the same. Something bad comes in our lives, and we freak out. We forget the one who was in the boat with us. So this encounter with Jesus' divine power serves as a call to fuller faith. This is something he hadn't seen before, and is saying, trust me even more in this. Isn't that the nature of faith that continues to grow? Is your faith growing? Is your confidence, your trust in the promises of God growing? The staggering power of Jesus, the stunning power of Jesus calls us to faith. It calls us to trust. It calls us to confidence. Now, when I say faith, I don't mean just sort of imagining some fuzzy good things in your life, like I'm just going to trust God to do. No, I mean active, concrete confidence in the promises of God. So one reaction there, it should have been faith, but notice what it is now in verse 25. And they, being afraid, wondered. And these guys are afraid. So this stunning power should have brought about faith, but rather it brings out fear. They were afraid, as I mentioned earlier. This is clear-cut evidence that the one in the boat with them is God. Clear-cut evidence that the one in the boat with them is the creator. And rightfully, their first reaction is abject terror. If we were to stand before God at this very instant, none of us would be like, hey, dude, what's up? Like, hey, let's be all casual and just kind of hang out. We would fall on our faces in worship and awe and in absolute terror. The recognition that God is in the boat with them provokes this response. You say, that doesn't sound like, and I thought like Jesus was this cool guy we just kind of hang out with. This is the reaction from Genesis to Revelation. When people have an encounter with God, when Isaiah sees him, he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm broken. This is going to destroy me. When John sees Jesus in his glory on the island of Patmos, he falls down before him as a dead man. When Daniel had an encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ in his glory, he fell down on his face before him. When Peter realized that Jesus, when he did the miracle with the fish, he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. This is the same thing ten times over fear. They're in the presence of the supernatural. They're in the presence of one who's infinitely holy and powerful. By the way, this is the reaction throughout this. I said this entire section is bound together with this focus on the power of Jesus. The reaction of the disciples when the storm is raging and when Jesus calms it is fear. Look down in verse 47. Um, I'm sorry, verse 37. The whole country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. They see Jesus deliver the guy from the demons, and it scares them out of their mind. Verse 47, when Jesus... Uh, When the woman comes to Jesus, it says, When she saw she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared before all the people for what cause she had touched him. And then verse 56, this is the child Jesus raises from the dead. Her parents were astonished. So the reaction to Jesus' power throughout this is fear. Wow, he's more than just a prophet, more than just a teacher. He's God. 
But notice back in our text, verse 45, it says they were being afraid, they wondered. Now, this is more than just, hmm, I wonder what's going on, or I wonder what we're going to have for lunch today. This is the word for astonishment, amazement. The word means to be extraordinarily impressed or disturbed by something. They're like, this is, this is amazing, but this is kind of scary kind of amazing. And then they ask this question, what manner of man is this? Literally, who then is this? They sort of had, a, had an idea of what Jesus was like. Like, here's our category of what Jesus is like. He does great things. He's probably the Messiah. And Jesus just took that and exploded the box. Just exploded the frame. They're like, yeah, this is how he works. And now uh, we, we don't know who this is anymore. Who then is this? What kind of conclusion should we draw with this new evidence that has been presented to us? Now, think about what they've already seen in, in the previous chapter. We'd seen Jesus raise the dead at the village of Nain. We'd seen him heal, we'd seen him cast out demons, they'd heard him teach, they'd heard him preach. But who therefore is this? They do not have a category for this kind of power because it is supernatural. This was a shudder-inducing thought. Could the man in the back of the boat, who looks so ordinary, could he be God? That's the question they're asking. That is the question that every one of us must come to grips with. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Not just what is the right answer that you learned in Sunday school, but who do you believe him to be in the depth of your soul? Do you believe him to be God's son? Do you believe him to be the savior of the world? Do you believe him to be the one who he claimed to be? Do you believe him to be the resurrected one? Here's the next question. Not just who do you believe him to be. It's not just belief that, but it becomes belief in. Has there been a time in your life that you have repented from trying to bail out the boat yourself to trusting the one who's there? From trusting yourself to save you to trusting Jesus to save you? Has there been a time when you've turned from ruling yourself to crying out to Jesus as master, master? Is that true for you? Or is your boat still sinking? Or has he delivered you from the storm? This question, who then is this? It's really the question that Luke is answering through the rest of chapter 8. Indeed, it's the question he's answering over all 24 chapters of this gospel. It's the question that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all set out to answer. And it brings us to one conclusion. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And there's no salvation apart from him. If Jesus has this kind of power, Jesus is God, you trust him. Christian, beloved, fellow church member, Will you rely on him when the storm arises? We accept the reality that he, and not you, is sovereign. I think, well, that's me. I'm kind of in control, and my will can do all of these things, and God has to sort of accommodate what I want. No, 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 no. We, We accommodate to what he wants. We submit to what he wants. Will you surrender your notions of control to the one who really is in control? You see, we have sort of this... I don't know, this appearance of control and we do things, but we're not really in control. He is. So will you surrender to the one who is Lord of all? Will you surrender and bow and worship to the one who is the King of kings? Will you glorify the King of kings? Father, we praise you for the awesome power of Jesus. May we delight in, may we celebrate it, may we worship.